All right, let's open our Bibles to 2 Samuel this morning. And we'll start at the end of 2 Samuel, or at least toward the end, chapter 23. We begin a new series in 2 Samuel this morning. And really, in many ways, we're jumping back into a series that we left off more than a year ago. A series in 1 and 2 Samuel. That's one book in the Hebrew Bible. And really, it is one story. Though there are certainly at least two halves to it. So we've done the first half. But again, that was more than a year ago. And so we'll take this first Sunday back to reorient ourselves to the books of First and Second Samuel. I heard that request from a few different people as we talked about getting back to Second Samuel. They asked if we would do some sort of reintroduction, some sort of, some sort of where we've been and where we're going kind of message before we get into the specifics of it. And so that's what we'll try to do today. You could call it First and Second Samuel in the grand scheme of things. So we not only want to summarize and try to understand what Second Samuel is saying and what we'll see in the weeks ahead, but we want to sort of situate First and Second Samuel into this pocket of biblical history that we find it in. We want to see something of the flow of the story in First and Second Samuel, but also the flow of the broader story of the Bible itself. If we had to narrow First and Second Samuel down to one theme, it would have to be king, king. It's in those days of transition when Israel went from no king to then having a king and then finding a better king. And if we had to narrow First and Second Samuel down to one character, it would be David. Even those chapters, 1 through 15, that mention nothing of David, they're really anticipating the true king. And then by chapter 16, we find out who he is. And from chapter 16 to 31... David is then anointed as the king to be, and God is protecting him until he gets to the throne when he'll reign. So 1 Samuel ended without David yet reigning. But in 2 Samuel, chapters 1 through 10, there David is the king, and his kingdom is being further established, secured, and growing. And sure, even if it's being established and growing slowly and painfully, it's being established surely by God. That's the first half of 2 Samuel. The second half, chapters 11 and following, are days in which David's failures are highlighted. Days in which he's disciplined by the Lord. And in those chapters, we're left wondering, is David the promised king? Is David even a better king? Is there, is there a better king still to come? Throughout it all, we keep learning that as it goes with the king, so it goes with the people. Whether we're in the days of Eli and his wicked sons, the priests, or in the days of King Saul, or, or in the days of David leading bandits in the desert as they flee from Saul's army. Or the days of David's greatest successes and seasons of peace. Or in the days of David's darkest sins. We must keep remembering the need for godly rule. And the problems that come from bad leadership. It's not just a leadership book. But it tells us that the human problem of sin 
is addressed by God in part through a man or men that he appoints and they lead. As it goes with the king, so it goes with the people. And so let's look in chapter 23 to David's final words where we see this principle, as it goes with the king, so it goes with the people. 2 Samuel 23, verse 1. Now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me, David says. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like a morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For who does not my house, for does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant and ordered in all things and secure. Now, that's not prescribing monarchy for modern day secular politics, nor is it limiting political leadership today to only God fearers. So, we need to take off our 21st century American glasses and not think that this is politically prescriptive for every age and every era. And yet, if we take off those 21st century American glasses and get inside 2 Samuel and inside the mind of David and the Israelites in that time, it will actually lead us all the way to salvation, all the way to Jesus, all the way to the true and final kingdom. David spoke by God when he said what he said. That when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, it's, it's like the morning light. It's like a sunrise on a cloudless day. It's like rain that makes the grass to grow. The people flourish. They are refreshed. As it goes with the king, so it goes with the people. Now, before we talk more about 2 Samuel, I think we should back up and think about God's plans for a king from long before David. That's what we'll do this morning. We're going to take the concept of king and we'll look at it from six different angles or at six different points in the Bible. We don't do this kind of thing normally in a Sunday morning sermon. Usually we're pretty focused in just one passage. But every now and then I think it's useful for us to zoom out and you take a single theme uh, to lead us through parts of the Bible to see that theme develop and grow because the Bible is really one of promise and fulfillment, but that promise or promises and fulfillment or fulfillments, uh, there, there are many. There are, there's progress. There's movement going on. It's not all at once. So here's the first, a promised king. From Genesis to Deuteronomy, we get a couple of promises about a king to come. In Genesis 3.15, the sin problem and the Satan problem is addressed by God giving this promise that a seed of the woman would one day come and crush the head of the serpent. It doesn't say anything about a king, per se, but that's really what it is. Someone who will come and rule. Someone who will come and judge. Someone who will come and save. But then you get to Abraham in the book of Genesis, and the promises get explicit about kings coming from him. 
Genesis 17, 6, God said, I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. In Genesis 17, 16, God said of Sarah, Abraham's wife, kings shall come for her, from her. And then in Genesis 35, 11, God said again to Abraham, a nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your own body. Now, the rest of Genesis is really about one family, four generations total. You've got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Judah. And that's the line through which the promises flow. Those promises given to, to Abraham were repeated to each of those generations, but none of them were kings. How could they be kings? There was no nation at this point, even though God had promised to make from them a nation. They weren't a nation yet. They couldn't be kings yet. This is just one big dysfunctional family who'd been given massive promises from God. And the promises even get bigger when we come to the end of Genesis and we talk about Judah. In Genesis 49, Jacob blessed his son Judah and said, Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Big promises. A ruler to come. A ruler from Judah. One who will rule and get the obedience of all the peoples. Later on, Many years later on, when the people of Israel were wandering in the wilderness and soon about to enter the promised land, God spoke through Moses. This is Deuteronomy 17, and here he talked about a king again. He said, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. The rest of the chapter, God goes on to talk about this king to come, that he must be a man of his word, a man of God's word. He must read the word daily. He must keep it faithfully. He must rule in the fear of the Lord, not turning aside from the Lord. And if he does that, then the kingdom will endure for him, for his sons, and for all Israel. So there's the promised king or kings. It's a seed of a woman. Kings from Abraham, a ruler from Judah, and one king that God will choose once they are in the land, a king who goes his ways and follows after his heart. So where is this king? Well, secondly, a missing king. A missing king, question mark? From Judges to 1 Samuel 8, there is no king. In fact, that's the mantra of the book of Judges. The book of Judges is set in very dark days. Sin and idolatry was rampant. Israel reflected more of the nations around her than being a light to those nations. And in those days, during that rebellion, God would chastise his people by letting the nations come in and overtake them and oppress them. And then eventually the people would cry out to God for a rescue. And then God would send Judges, men like 
Samson and Gideon, and they they would rescue the people from the tyranny of the nations around them. They would then lead them, but lead them so-so, half-heartedly. They'd exercise some justice, but none of them were straight shooters. None of them were good men. They were flawed to the core. And again, the mantra of judges is that these are days when there's no king. Judges 17.6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Or chapter 18, verse 1. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Or 19.1. In those days when there was no king in Israel. And that's how the book ends. Chapter 21, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, that's the book that bumps up against 1 Samuel, our story, at least chronologically so. It's not so in our Bibles. There's Ruth in between. But, but when Judges ends, the, the, the book of 1 Samuel's beginning. It's those days, those dark days. No king. And then we read in 1 Samuel of rumblings taking place in Shiloh. There's a barren woman who prays fervently to the Lord for a son, and God gives her a son. And so often in the Bible, that's not just God answering one individual's prayers. So often in the Bible, barrenness breaking forth into birth signals God doing something new, God doing something big. Just think of Elizabeth not being able to bear children, and then Miraculously, she is giving birth to John the Baptist. God is doing something big and something new. And Hannah seems to understand this because when she prays her prayer of thanks, she writes a song of thanks to the Lord in view of being given a son. She thanks him for far more than just a son. Turn back to it. 1 Samuel 2. 1 Samuel 2. Just the end of it here. We'll read just the end where Hannah's prayer says so much more than just thank you for a son. In fact, she doesn't really mention her son specifically, but that God is bringing low and and lifting high. He's taking the the low and raising them up and the the lofty, he's putting them down. And then verse 10, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces Against him he'll thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power or horn of his anointed. A king. A king is coming. Somehow this woman saw it. It's not that her son, though he was a promised son, though he was a miraculous son, an answer to prayer, her son would not be that king. He would be the last of the judges, a prophet. And through Samuel, her son, God would begin to speak to the nation again. He would begin to lead them in this interim period until a king was to come. And Samuel would be the one to speak of God's will about that king to come in who he is. But but in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, there's a false start. They jump the gun on the king thing. And the people demand Samuel to make for them a king for their nation. They say, we want a king like the nations have. We want a king who is like those kinds of kings, who fights our battles for us, a a warrior king, a general kind of king. God said he would choose their king. 
and implied in his timing. God said that their king would be one who's not like the kings of the nations. Samuel warned the people that day, the kings of the nations take and take and take and take. They're all about themselves. But the people persisted. He said, no, give us a king. And God gave them what they wanted. Thirdly, a bad king. 1 Samuel 9 introduces to us Israel's first king. And at first he doesn't seem that bad. But there are hints from the very beginning that he's not the kind of king that God was talking about in Deuteronomy 17. This king, Saul, he's tall and he's handsome, but he lacks courage. He's weak. At his inauguration, he was hiding in luggage rather than being in the public eye. They had to go get him. We learn in later chapters that he has a a bit of a problem with self-focus, with the fear of man. And when push comes to shove, he's not interested in doing God's commands but doing his own will. And from there, these themes spiral into a black hole of more sin, more self-focus, even paranoia, even delusion. But it's especially when David comes into the picture that we begin to see that true Saul start to come out. At first, Saul loves David. He has David uh, as his head general of the army and and his chief musician. And, And yet, within a chapter, he wants to kill David. He wants to kill David out of jealousy for David. Saul was willing to kill his son, Jonathan, because Jonathan was siding with David. Jonathan believed that God was with David and that David would eventually be the king. So that's the bad king. Then we see, fourthly, a better king. The better king shows up. The bad king and the better king overlap for the whole second half of the book of 1 Samuel. Starting in verse 13, we start, sorry, in chapter 13, verse 14, we start hearing about this one. The Lord is going to pursue a man after God's own heart. Someone besides Saul. Chapter 15, verse 28. Saul's told, God is giving the kingdom to a man who is better than you. And then chapter 16, we meet him. He's the shepherd boy. He's anointed the king to be, not because he was the firstborn or the strongest or because he was the tallest. No, God told Samuel that day that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. This is a man after God's own heart. And he shows that to us supremely in the famous story of David and Goliath where David isn't concerned so much about his personal safety. He's not concerned with the the criticism, the unrelenting criticisms of all those around him in the story, including the giant himself. David's concern is for the name of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord. And he trusts in the Lord, and the Lord gives him victory that day. The writing's on the wall. David will be a better king to come. But it's decades before David's anointing leads to actually reigning. In chapters 18 to 20 of 1 Samuel, David is in Saul's house. Again, he's head of the army. He's the chief musician. He's successful in all he does. God is with him. God has blessed him. But there's opposition. And the opposition grows until chapter 21 
where David knows he must flee the house of Saul because he knows now that Saul is intent on David's death. So for the rest of 1 Samuel, chapter 21 to 31, David is on the run and Saul is focused on one thing, chasing David and killing David. In the process, David shows his faithfulness to God, his trust in God, and Saul shows us the horror of apostasy, of focusing on self, of fearing the wrong things. And in the end, Saul dies a tragic death on a battlefield. That's 1 Samuel 31. By 2 Samuel 2, David is fully anointed the king of Judah. There, finally, the king that was anointed back in chapter 16 is finally appointed the king in 2 Samuel 2. Now, at that point, the kingdom has come. The king is there. But the king isn't fully there. The kingdom is still coming. You see, from 2 Samuel 2 all the way through chapter 10, David's kingdom is being further established, further recognized, and further secured against the enemies of Israel out there and against enemies of David in Israel itself. It's not until chapter 5 that David is finally appointed as the king of Israel. He'd been appointed king of Judah in 2 Samuel 2. In 2 Samuel 5, the northern tribes called Israel finally gave up fighting against David as their king, stopped offering substitutes and alternatives, and placed themselves under his leadership. At that point, David has unified the tribes. He's now, in a sense, for the first time, become a king with a nation. It's at that point that David takes the Ark of the Covenant. It had been in some backwoods uh, storage unit, you could say, for decades. And David gets it finally. He, he brings it up to Jerusalem. He dances before the Ark in celebration. He's making Jerusalem the center of Israel's worship and really the center of his headquarters. It's a capital city. It's David's city. And then by chapter 7 and 8, you start getting these summaries about David's success that are helpful. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. Summaries of his success. The king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. That might be a little exaggerated because there are still enemies to be fought in the rest of 2 Samuel, but it has to be significantly so. I mean, now there's rest. There's rest in a house. There's apparently some rest from the enemies around. God has blessed David. Chapter 8, verse 14 says as much. The Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel, it says. And David administered justice and equity to, to all the people. He's unifying the people. He's making a nation out of ragtag tribes. He's modeling faith and trust in the Lord, obedience to the Lord, worship of the Lord. He's exercising justice with equity and even mercy. He's showing mercy and patience left and right in these chapters. Sometimes you wonder if it was right for him to show that much mercy or to be that flexible. 
And yet through it all, he's also defeating the enemy and bringing peace to the land. Now fast forward to 2 Samuel 22. 2 Samuel 22. This is the end of the story. Here's where David reflects back and writes a song of praise and thanks for what God has done in the years preceding. 2 Samuel 22, verse 1, another summary here. David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, verse 2, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. Skip to the end of it. Verse 51, there he says great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Not only is David summarizing what God has done and giving praise to God for it, but David is also doing it in a way that points us back to the beginning of the book. And by the beginning of the book, I mean the book of 1 and 2 Samuel. 1 Samuel 2, remember, had Hannah's famous prayer, her song. And David uses a lot of the same language. Just look back. 1 Samuel 2, look at it again. Keep your finger in chapter 22 or 23, you can see some of the overlapping language where, where Hannah said in chapter 2, verse 1, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. And then at the end, Hannah said, He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked will be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. So do you hear it? King, anointed. They both talked about that. David spoke it in past tense. He has done it. While Hannah saw ahead to the future, he will give strength to his king. He will protect his anointed. Hannah's song was about an unknown, unnamed king. David knows who it is. It's him. He did it to David and his offspring forever. So David is that better king. David is that long-awaited one, the ruler from Judah who rules justly and righteously. And as it goes with the king, so it goes with the people. The people flourish and are blessed under David's rule. They're like the morning light like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Doesn't my house stand so with God, David asked? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant. Everlasting covenant should lead us to this fifth thing to think about regarding God's kings. An even better king? Question mark. An even better king? You see, David is a better king than Saul, but there is an even better king to come in the plan of God. And 2 Samuel shows that to us in two ways, one positive, one negative. The positive way we learn that there's a better king to come, better than David, is in 2 Samuel 7. Would you turn there? This is a key chapter in the Bible, one quoted by later Old Testament, one quoted often in the New Testament. 
Here in 2 Samuel 7, God enlarges the promises to David and his kingdom. So 7 verse 8, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. Verse 12, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. There's the other king. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever and I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Second Samuel 7 tells us there's more to come. We know it's Solomon, David's son, who will build God a temple, a house. But Solomon didn't rule forever. What is with this forever kingdom, forever son, forever uh, established, forever? We'll tuck that away. We know there's a son to come. We know there's an eternal throne kingdom that awaits. But there's also a negative way in which 2 Samuel shows us that there's a better king than David that's still to come in the plan of God. If chapters 1 through 10 of 1 Samuel are all very positive about God establishing David through trials, yes, but establishing his kingdom, then chapters 11 to 24 of 2 Samuel are primarily about David's weaknesses, his sins, his failures, and the consequences of those sins and failures. There's a major shift from chapter 10 to 11. Chapter 10 There are successes on the battlefield, left and right. Chapter 11, they enter into battle again, and successes are even there as well. But David didn't go with them that time. And here's where things turn. As he stayed home from battle that day in chapter 11, we find his high failure when he sees a woman bathing on a rooftop. The infamous Bathsheba story follows. He takes her. He sleeps with her. She becomes pregnant. He does whatever he needs to do to cover it up. He he moves from smaller things to greater things to cover up his sin. And it ends with the murder of Bathsheba's husband. The king who is famous for being a man after God's own heart in this moment, this season, is a man after his own heart. In this season of life, he looks more like King Saul and the king of the nation, the kings of the nations that take and take and take for their own. In chapter 12 of 2 Samuel, David is confronted by the prophet, and David thankfully repents. He repents, but there are consequences still. God spells them out. Chapter 12, verse 9. Look at that. God says, You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. The sword will never depart from your house. And that's what follows. Consequences follow from chapter 12 all the way to 20. Sad consequences of this one sin are multiplied. The child dies. That's chapter 12. Then in chapter 13, one of David's sons, Amnon, he rapes his half-sister. David does nothing. 
So Absalom, one of the brothers, one of David's sons, Absalom murders Amnon. Because of that, Absalom needs to flee Jerusalem. Again, David does nothing. In chapter 14, after a a three-year hiatus of Absalom exiled outside of Jerusalem, finally he's allowed back in, but now he despises his father. He blames his father for the whole thing. David is still passive as rumors are growing of a coup. And Absalom eventually does gain enough of the army under him that he overtakes David's throne. David does nothing. Chapter 16, the threat grows and David has to flee his own capital city. He abdicates the throne. Absalom is not content at that. Chapter 17, he takes his troops and he pursues David into the wilderness. It's just like the days of Saul played out all over again. But in chapter 18, David's general, Joab, killed Absalom, the son, on a battlefield. David lamented, and he returned to Jerusalem, but that's not the end of the conflict of the story here. David returns to a Jerusalem that's torn apart by civil war. The northern tribes are now against him. In chapter 20, a guy named Sheba, unfortunate name, he leads a rebellion against David. It doesn't last long, but it's civil war all over again. Remember, God said, the sword shall never depart from your house. Sin has consequences, even when we repent. And David multiplied the consequences of those sins with sins of commission, like sleeping with Bathsheba or killing her husband, and sins of omission, passivity, not doing anything, not ruling, not leading, being scared, being frozen. Much of chapter 21 to 23, as we come to the end of the book, is positive. There are summaries of David's life and what's gone on in the story of David. But, but the book ends in chapter 24 with another major sin. In chapter 24, David takes a census. He counts the soldiers. And it was sin. We're not told why it was sin. This isn't always a sin in the Bible. It must have been either an expression of his personal pride, like how many people I have, I think it's 1.3 million that were under his reign at that time. Perhaps, though, he was trusting in the sword, trusting in the numbers, trusting in manpower, trusting in what he could see, not what God said. We don't know why it was sin, but we know it was sin. And there David repented again, just as he did with Bathsheba and Uriah, He repented here as well for taking the census. And just like the Bathsheba debacle, here again, even though David repented, there were consequences. Here was the consequence. 70,000 Israelites died of a plague that year. As it goes with the king, so it goes with the people. David was a good king most of the time. Sometimes he took and took and took. Sometimes he trusted in the numbers and the people paid. There has to be a better king. And indeed, there is, but not yet. Sixth, we're almost there, a forgotten king. Here's where I sense weariness on your part. Do not be weary in well-doing. Let's turn to Psalm 89. 
Psalm 89, why Psalm 89? Well, because this is one of the best places in the Bible to see that long waiting for the king, never coming, never coming in its fullness, such a long wait that God's people seem to wonder if God had forgotten about his promises of old. Psalm 89 was probably written uh, in the days of the Babylonian captivity. And in those days, there was one final king, Jehoiakim. He was a wicked young punk who only reigned for a few months, but the Babylonians came in and brought him to Babylon, and, and he was the last Davidic king to reign. No one has since. You can imagine then being in Babylon, hearing about Jerusalem being sacked, the temple destroyed, the walls torn down, the people exiled and enslaved again. It's like Exodus all over, but not the good part, the bad part at the beginning. No king, no throne, no rule, no kingdom. And so Psalm 89 wrestles with the possibility of disillusionment. It wrestles with that gap between God's massive promises and the harsh circumstances of defeat and disintegration at the beginning of the Babylonian captivity. So Psalm 89, verse 3. The psalmist says, you have said, I've made a covenant with my chosen one. I've sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Then in following verses, the psalmist praises God for all the great things he did of old. You know, the exodus, the, the, the freeing of the people, the, the, the showing of power here and there. What you have done in history is prove your faithfulness again and again. And so he comes back to the promises that were given to David in verse 19. He reminds God of them, we could say. Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I've granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David, my servant, with my holy oil. I have anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him, and my arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in his name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever in his throne as the days of the heavens. It goes on from there. God is still speaking in verse 35 in the psalmist recording of it. He says, once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. And then the psalmist finally responds to God. Verse 38. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. I think implied is that it seems like you have cast us off. It seems like you've renounced the covenant. But then there's the question. Verse 49. Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? There's no answer. The psalmist just ends with a simple 
sentence of trust and praise. Verse 52, blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Now, have you ever felt something like Psalm 89, where there seems to be some disconnect between the promises that we have in God's word and the experience we know in our lives or the timing of God's promises. It seemed like he was going to do this or that soon and and it hasn't come. Will it ever come? Has he forgotten? How long, O Lord? I think we can pray prayers like that. But not ones exactly like Psalm 89 because the question of Psalm 89 is, where's the king? What about your promises about a great kingdom? And we as Christians know the king has come. There is a final king. It was a thousand years after God first promised it to David. That's a long time. But it, he came. In the fullness of time, Christ came. So seventh and finally, a final king. A final king. Where do we see this final king We could see it in any number of places in the New Testament. You think of Luke 1, where the angel spoke to Mary there and said, Do not be afraid, Mary. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Forever promises need a forever king. And Jesus is that eternal king. And he reigns forever and ever. Hence, he's the king of kings and lord of lords. And David was one of the kings and the great king of the Old Testament. And he pointed ahead to the greater king to come. Only David. David couldn't live forever. And there's much made of this in Acts chapter 2. Trent preached this for us at our last, our Lord's Supper service last Wednesday. That David, he died. And Peter makes much of the fact that David died, but Jesus doesn't, he doesn't stay dead. He lives forevermore. And those promises that were given to David that were seemingly far too big for any human being to, to fill... Jesus came and he filled them to the full. He filled all of them. He is exalted. David died and Jesus is the one who died and was raised and lives forevermore. All the promises come together in him. This David thing, though, is such a big deal. David's mentioned in our Bibles over a thousand times. And those references don't even start until Ruth. And after that, a thousand mentions of David, many of them in the New Testament talking about how David was a king of old and God worked through him in great ways and gave grand promises to him and to his son. And Jesus came as the son of David. It's a big deal. It's how the book of Romans begins. Paul just says in 2 Timothy 2, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. One of just a few bullet points of Paul's gospel is that Jesus, the Messiah, is resurrected and he's the offspring of David. It's how our New Testaments end. 
Revelation 22, Jesus says, I, Jesus, am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. It's not that David was so good or so important, but God chose David to be a unique foreshadow of a son to come, the son to come, the eternal son to come. And as it goes with the king, so it goes with the people. And with David, at times David was with God and the people were blessed. And at times God, David went astray and the people fell into sin and chaos and even curse. What we need is a king who will not only remain good and not have any bad days or bad seasons, but be perfectly good. And not only that, but remain living, not dying, not giving the kingdom off to another who will maybe not rule as good as he did. And that's exactly what happened with David. Solomon was no David. And after Solomon, it got worse and worse. We need a king also who can solve the problem of human sin before a holy God. Not a king who just rules righteously or models righteousness, but a king who can give us righteousness and make payment for the judgment of sin that is on all of us. And Jesus is alone all of that. He is the one, the thing, the, the person through whom all of the Bible and all the promises flow. He's the prophet, the priest, the king, the sacrifice, the atonement. He's the answer. Praise God that he has come. Praise God he has come. Praise God we know the answers of Psalm 89. Praise God we know what kind of king he is. He's a good king. He's a forever king. He's a righteous king. He's a welcoming king, a gracious king, a patient king. And as it goes with the king, so it goes with his people. And so he was raised and one day will be raised and he inherits everything, and we inherit it with him if we're his. We've been adopted. He cheated death. Well, death is nothing to us. There's no sting. It has no victory. And as we wait for him to come again, it may be long. It's been almost 2,000 years so far, but we know it's sure. One day with the Lord is like a thousand years and a thousand years a day. He's right on schedule. He has not forgotten. We do not say, don't you see? Do you still remember? Do you know we're down here? Do you know how it's going? Oh, we know. He's on his throne. He's reigning. He's ruling. Not one hair falls to the ground apart from our Father's will. Not one bird drops out of a nest apart from our Father's will. He cares for us. He is this world's only sovereign, and he will indeed come again and make everything right. Amen. Let's pray for his help. Help us, Father, to believe that your son is the, is the only son, the one and only, the answer. Oh, Lord, help us to wait patiently. So much of your word tells us to wait, to wait on the Lord. Give us patience, give us endurance, give us perseverance. And yet give us a longing for the coming of Christ, 
a proper longing for the coming of Christ, that day when we will see him as he is and we will be changed, we'll be like him, we will be made new and we will worship him forever and ever in a new heaven and a new earth with all of heaven's angels and all of heaven's saints. Oh Lord, we long for that day. We pray you would come and we pray in the meantime we would be ready, we'd be thoughtful, we'd be vigilant and watchful. We would be, Lord, the people you've called us to be, the people Jesus died to redeem, the people he has indwelt by his spirit, the people he calls to himself. Help us to be all that you've called us to be because of him and for his glory, we pray. Amen.